Good. I'd like to ask for your attention again. Still uh, thinking of tracing mindfulness and what can go wrong with it. Um, the virtue of mindfulness is praised in many corners and uh, I'd like to add to last night just um, let's look at a few more ways how mindfulness can get lost. How does it feel or how do I recognize if mindfulness is not happening, if it's not taking place. Um, last night I spoke of those five hindrances, um, quite elaborate uh, psychology behind these simple, the simple naming of those five hindrances. Um, this morning let's just look without going into such depth at maybe more psychological ways our mindfulness can get lost. What gets lost when I'm not mindful? How do I notice that this is not mindfulness. I'm sure you have your pet criteria for this. You're, you've, I hope you have established your own diagnostic tools for the absence of mindfulness. And this is useful. Um, however, I'd just like to mention a few qualities that are indicative of a loss of mindfulness. So mindfulness can get lost in and when we lose our flexibility. So when the mind loses its capacity to zoom in and zoom out, to attune, to modulate. Sometimes that feels as if I am stuck. My mindfulness, or my mind, and the mind's attention um, is stuck on a particular feature of my experience. At the end of the meeting, when he said this, just the way he looked. You know, now that happened 20 minutes ago when I'm already sitting at the, at the table eating with some other guys. We were in the midst of a conversation and all my attention seems to circle around is just how he looked when he said this 20 minutes ago. You know, I'm kind of stuck on this feature. Now it's a memory. Then it was a perception. But now it's a memory. But somehow, it seems that everything since is in a blur. <coughs> and I'm preoccupied with that particular feature of my experience. The impact it had. The intentionality I may have attributed to the person speaking. And that's where my attention is. The world has moved on since. And I'm still there. So that's one of the examples our mindfulness can get lost. The flexibility of mindfulness can get lost. You may recognize this. Another way mindfulness can get lost is I, I basically lose the here and now. I lose... Uh, now is a complicated, it's a complicated concept. In, I, I keep criticizing the use of this term in Buddhist circles because, you know, did you know that there is actually no term in Buddhism that corresponds to now? Yeah. There are many <coughs> terms in Pali that refer to this, but it is of no philosophical or psychological significance. There is no such thing as now. Yeah. Now is a Buddhist 
fairy land. You know, it's a kind of um, now is constructed. There isn't a clean now between memory and fantasy, between past and future. There isn't a clean place called now where you, when you move in there, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. There isn't such a place. Now is actually quite a rubbery experience. And that now is construed. The Buddhist term, which is generally <coughs> translated as now, it doesn't actually mean now, it means that which is presently arisen, acknowledging conditionality, acknowledging <laughs> contingency, <laughs> acknowledging the constructed nature of even that now. So it's not that yesterday is all full of bad uh, memories and the future is full of desirous hopes and the now is pristine and pure. It's not like that. But let's get back to mindfulness and ways of getting lost. <coughs> so losing the here and now means I stop being aware of what my body, my senses and my heart tell me about what's happening at this present moment. I am preoccupied, maybe through a fantasy, I am preoccupied maybe by a slight that has happened a while ago, I may be, uh, be the prey of a, a reverie that uh, vitalizes me, or I may be um, regressed in some state of loss or deprivation that has happened a long time ago and may not have exactly happened in the way I remember it, but somehow it makes me feel bad. And I, by some unfortunate situation, have decided that to identify with this part of my experience has become a habit in my mind. Yeah. So losing the here and now means that I'm severely diminished in my presence, in my capacity to feel, in my capacity to understand, in my capacity to participate, in my capacity to act compassionately. Uh, I'm a lot less worth in the present moment than I could be if I wasn't somewhere else with much of my energy, with much of my mind, particularly with much of my attention. So losing the here and now, I think, is a quite obvious way how mindfulness can get lost. My friend John translates mindfulness as recollection of the present moment. Yeah. That's an interesting and fine uh, construct. It does justice to the old meaning of the term sati or smirti, which in the Vedic tradition basically means memory or holding thing, something in mind, the capacity to bring something to mind that has happened before or has been said before. So that's the old meaning of sati. Then uh, you know, Buddhist, early Buddhist teaching has re rejected that meaning and made a sort of present-centered exercise out of this. The other uh, context in which sati is used and mostly defined as is the context of the Satipatthana teachings, the establishments of mindfulness. And there it clearly isn't a memory. It's clearly not a mnemonic technique. But uh, one way of bringing the two meanings together is actually getting the term recollection, which some, some forms of sati uh, have clearly a recollecting function. So if we recall the qualities of the Buddha or the Dhamma or devas or freedom, peace, things like that, uh, then we actually 
use the capacity of the mind to recall something that has slipped by. So bringing something back into the present moment is also a function of sati. When you notice that you have, your mind has wandered off the breath and is resolving your fourth marriage or you know, so fixes the planet or rescues God knows what out there, then, and you notice that this is happening. You notice that you're actually no longer mindful of your breath. And that part that notices that you're no longer mindful is already mindfulness. You know, it's already an aspect of mindfulness that notices that you're no longer mindful. It's a bit like with fever, you know, you think fever is the problem, but actually fever is part of the solution. It's your body's attempt to, by raising the temperature, to get rid of some invasion. You know, that by <clears throat> so by just lowering fever, you don't actually necessarily resolve the problem, you just kill the messenger. So sati sometimes tells us that we're not mindful, and it is already part of sati that tells us that. That's the moment where we should jubilate rather than blame ourselves for having lost it again. The third way of losing mindfulness would be um, losing the body, you know, losing embodiment. I suddenly find I'm no longer in this body. I find myself scrunched up in a strange posture. Or, I've been so fixated on finishing the layout on my screen that I actually forgot how to go to the loo. I suddenly feel my bladder is full. Or, or I notice I've been straining my eyes. Yeah. Suddenly I notice my eyes have gone inflamed. And I've been so hard <coughs> trying to get something done or fix something or prevent something that I've not paid attention to it actually in the meantime, an inflammation of my eyes has set in. So there's many ways of losing the body. Uh, many of those ways are called dissociation. Yeah. I go away with my intentionality to some other place than where the body is. Meditators are over average uh, prone to such things called dissociation. If I may speak under my side, it's like a therapist's hat. There is a generic suspicion against meditators that they are not just more likely to be prone to this, but are actually indulging in dissociation under meditative guises sometimes. Um, unfortunately, anecdotal evidence has it that people who meditate are, are very good at sometimes not being with their bodies. They go to some inner spaces where it's peaceful, where it's safe, where they cannot be overwhelmed, both by needs or by sensations, and that can feel quite peaceful. So meditators sometimes think, this is, isn't this what it is all about, being peaceful? That's what the Buddha said. You know, Self-sufficient, autonomous, peaceful, without hankering and fretting for the world. Isn't that what I'm doing? Sometimes it's not what we're doing. Yeah? Sometimes we simply go away from need, we go away from sensation, we go away from complexity, we go away from um, the task of having not just to understand the world, but to meet the world with a heartful and intelligent response. So, 
Dissociation always means that I leave this body and I leave the intelligence of this body. I leave the sensations and the capacity of this body to be part of a world, to connect with the world and others. And that is psychologically not very salubrious. Uh, spiritually it's a catastrophe because there is no transcendence of suffering in a dissociated space. I can only transcend where I have arrived at. Dissociation makes me split off where I am. So, trying to not be where I am is not a really good chance, it's not a really good foundation to transcend where I happen to be. If I'm interested in transcendence, my first task has to be how I can arrive more clearly and more fully at where I am. Now, this is sometimes admittedly difficult. You know, if the reality you inhabit is threatening, toxic, hostile, <laughs> traumatizing, then, you know, meditation teachers can easily say, just be where you are and start transcend and transform. <laughs> this is not how it works. You know. It's also a question with how much resources I have. But it has to be very clear that the growth and transformation and transcendence starts from being, arriving at where we are. So, if meditation becomes a strategy for us not to be where we are, just because we say we want to be safe or we want to be quiet or we want to be autonomous or we don't want, we want to be free from need or overwhelm, then meditation can uh, be part of the problem. Like every powerful tool, meditation can be abused in some way. The better an instrument gets, the better a tool is, the more likely it is that we can abuse it in some way. You wouldn't hold it against a knife that it is sharp and pointed, would you? And yet we all know this, you can do great things with a knife, and these things you can also do bad stuff with a knife. So. Losing the body, losing embodiment, is one way of mindfulness getting lost. Sometimes I lose the space. It seems that my experience collapses onto one single aspect. And one way mindfulness can get lost is by me shriveling or contracting to a single aspect of my experience. A thought. A pain in the body. Nothing really is as dramatically as re reducing us so starkly as, as the experience of the body in pain, isn't it? If bodies are in pain, they, they lose all their space. It's embarrassing, I've been meditating for many years, but just give me two, three degrees of fever and all my meditative stillness is, you know, lamentably weak. The capacity to produce samadhi when you're having 39 degrees fever is starkly reduced. So, freedom cannot be coming from my power to make this mind still. While I appreciate stillness and while I encourage stillness, as I hope you have heard, uh, I'm quite clear. If this body has a, a renal colic or a severe burn, it is unlikely to attain deep states of samadhi. So, 
Sometimes it doesn't have to be that dramatic, but I'm reduced by fear. Fear can be powerfully reducing. Fear can take away all joy, all confidence, all relaxation, all stillness. You know, I can just shrivel down to a small black thread of fear. If you have ever had fear, you know what I mean. Pain, you know, just these bodies can be put into so much pain. Our mind, not just the body, can experience loss in such painful ways of grief. So we all know, we've, we've all had enough of this, <coughs> that we know that we can be reduced very quickly to one single aspect of our experience. That doesn't mean that the daffodils aren't blooming anymore. That doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who care for us. But somehow, at that moment, we don't feel it. So it's good to learn to gauge how big the space is in which I, which I inhabit when I sit here, still with me, trying to cultivate mindfulness. One aspect of mindfulness is that there are several things taking place at the same time. I know mindfulness-trained people, there is such a thing as sequential mindfulness, one thing at a time, and so forth. This is all true. But at the same time, sati is a feature that allows the mind to have parallel experiences. It is capable of peripheral awareness. I can foreground an aspect of experience which I give more of my attention, and the rest of my peripheral experience is still there. I can be with my breath and hear the birds. I can be aware of this body and be conscious of other bodies in this room. That's one of the features of sati. It is capable of holding parallel qualities of experience. If it is in a good space. If not, sometimes we just collapse and my experience goes on to one little thing. Sometimes I choose this as in a samatha exercise. I refine the object of my attention and try to deepen my relationship to that object or process. Sometimes this reduction happens through conditioning of my perception, through strong emotion, through a powerful felt sense, through uh, a stark situational constellation. Reduced to having to make a choice between two absolutely impossibly undesirable options. Gauging the space tells me something about my capacity for sati. And finally, a last thing that can get lost is I can lose the other. You know, something in my experience may happen that somehow only this end of experience, of the experiential field, seems real, and you somehow seem to disappear. I say that, you know, when I hurry to catch the train to go and teach a, a retreat of mindful living in the presence and I'm a little late for my train, you know, my experiential field has a lot less space for the guy begging at the side of the road. He usually doesn't get anything when I'm in a hurry. He has a much better chance if I have just three more minutes. You know, that's what makes the decision often for him. Yeah. Three more minutes of my life, of my time, of my perception of time, not even of actual time, just of my perception of time. And if, if there is just a perception of three more minutes, and suddenly this heart is capable of greater compassion, greater relationship, 
greater generosity. Just take away a little time from me, or just take away the notion that I have no time. <laughs> this heart is a lot less resonant, is a lot less generous, is a lot less feeling. I'm sure you know what I speak of when I say that sometimes we lose the other. We, we are so preoccupied with our own fears, with our own needs, with our own experiences. We can be so damn in love with our own lives that we kind of don't really pick up that somebody else actually is in need right now. We can be so fascinated with the importance of our projects that we don't have time to actually resonate with somebody else who is not at the same place. So sometimes uh, mindfulness can get lost if my world collapses to this, this unit of experience, this corner of the field of experience. Use these uh, categories. If you inquire into the space in which you sit and a space in which you try to cultivate mindfulness, ask yourself, you know, how much uh, body is here, how much space is here, how much of the others are here, how much here and now is here, how much flexibility is here. Yeah. And obviously the absences tell us something about where we need to work, where we need to find our edge of practice, widening the space, reconnecting with others, finding back to the body, uh, opening dexterity, rather than trying to fix my mind on a smaller and smaller point, and hold it there, control the universe and the five khandas, you know, somewhere at the tip of my nose. Uh, rather than trying to do this, actually widening out, learning to move mindfulness from one area to another area. Learning to recalibrate mindfulness from being big, open, spacious, me in here with the you and the universe and the birds and everything, to down to my belly and see how, how it is possible. All this is going to be mindfulness. Yeah? That movement of big and the movement of small. Both are useful. Both are needed. So for today, specific exercises uh, try to refine your attention on the processes of breathing. You have identified four stages. Yeah? The stage of appearance of a sensation, the stage of increase in a sensation, the stage of decrease, and the stage of disappearance. If you want to be precise, try to make phases out of those four stages. Yeah? So, beginning of an in-breath, its appearance, its increase, its decrease, its disappearance. Learn to identify, not as kind of points, but as stretches. Yeah. See whether you can, can refine and re-strengthen your awareness in the stretch of an appearance, in the stretch of an increase, in the stretch of a decrease, the stretch of this is something tapering off and disappearing. Particularly pay attention to how things end how sound ends, how a sensation ends, how a taste ends when you eat. Yeah? Who is ever interested in seeing a taste seize on your tongue? We're interested in shoveling the next spoon in. Yeah? We're not interested in getting close to the ending of a taste event in my, on my palate, in my tongue. 
usually we're interested in, you know, producing further input rather than staying with this till the end. Staying with things to the end is a powerful practice. It is counterintuitive. Our attention focuses on beginnings. Advertisement knows this. They write new, they change the bottle. I haven't fixed really anything on the content. They change the label, change the bottle, they write new on the, on the package, and we buy it. We think, ah, oh. it's the novelty that gets our attention. Yeah, there is an evolutionary bias for things that are appearing to catch more of our attention. That means that uh, habitually we seem to be interested when things begin. Yeah? It's quite obvious. We celebrate births and weddings and not deaths and divorces, for example. We're, uh, we're keen on the beginning stage of things. And then, usually, even if it's good, we're not really interested in pursuing, staying with it. If it's over the climax, generally, it, even if it's still good, it gets a little boring and our attention moves on. So it's counterintuitive to actually pay close attention to the ending of things, the ending of sensory experience, the ending of a mood, the ending of an impulse, the ending of a touch, touch sensation. If you use your senses, it's quite powerful. You know, how long can you hold the sensation of pressure when you just need your knee for a moment? How long can you hold the sensation? It ends every moment. Every disappearance of a sensation teaches you something about ending. The ending of breath, the ending of life, the ending of all events in your experience, the ending of sankharas, the ending of suffering. Yeah. All this is there in the attending to things gradually going away. Um, obviously this is a little eerie because it also implies that this protagonist is going to end in some way. And that's where we don't want to go. Generally, we don't want to go there. So. But because we're not going there, we are fixated on beginnings, on the upbeat, and it seems that we're working, we're living in a world that is more solid than it actually is. Because we keep focusing on the beginning stage, it seems hopeful, <laughs> it seems promising, it seems, you know, the good bit is just about to come. You know, if you're happy, you don't think you're happy. You think, this is the beginning of happiness. <laughs> this is, now I'm there. It's finally coming. This is the beginning now of my, of my fortune. And yet it is already the full-blown version of happiness at that moment. And there is no guarantee that it's going to continue. So take this into your meditation exercise, um, particularly in breathing, particularly in sound, particularly in sensation, in taste, in visual impressions, notice the ending of things, the tapering off. Notice the itch in your attentional movement to go and find something that doesn't end. Rather than following that itch, I'd suggest try to stay with it till it disappears from your senses, from your mind, from your body, from your tongue, from your ear. So, practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.